Have you ever wondered why or struggled with the idea that bad people get ahead and even prosper? You see people that lie, connive, and yet they achieve their desired outcomes. They occupy places of authority and obtain great wealth. Why do the wicked prosper is an age-old question. And the very fact that the evil prosper can be a stumbling block to those who are to seek to live godly lives. <coughs> In Psalm 73, we have a depiction of one response to the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist writes, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For the psalmist had raised the question, was it worth it to be living his life for the Lord when he saw the prosperity of the wicked? That's one response that can be had. Furthermore, the prosperity of the wicked leads some to question the very character of God. Since the wicked prosper, does that mean that God is not sovereign? Does that mean that he's not in control? That he sits in heaven and wrings his hands as he sees the wicked getting ahead? Or, since the wicked prosper, does that mean that God is unjust or uncaring? that he is not righteous, that he is not good. He has the authority to intervene, but fails to do so. Does that mean that, that God is not good? This morning, our passages focuses upon a wicked king who prospers. And so we want to address those two very important questions. First, what does God say about that? Why does the wicked prosper? And secondly, what should our response be? How should we view God? And how should we view this world in light of the fact that the wicked prosper? We begin this morning by noting that our premise is established, namely that the wicked prosper, for Jeroboam was a wicked king. The wickedness of Jeroboam is described in verse 24. We'll start at verse 23 to give the context. In the 13th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. Now here's the description of this king. And he did that which was evil. He did that what was evil. So we have a moral appraisal of Jeroboam's life. He indeed was wicked. And not only was he wicked in the eyes of men, but more importantly, he was wicked in the eyes of God. For we have God's assessment of Jeroboam's life and reign. God himself viewed Jeroboam as wicked. Note verse 24, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So here's God's assessment. Not just our assessment, but God's. Make no mistake about it. God is not pleased with Jeroboam's kingship. He doesn't render approval. Furthermore, it's important to note that Jeroboam never repented of his wickedness. It is not as though he started off wicked and then later repented and reformed in later life, but we find that he kept up the worship of the calves that Jeroboam I had established in place of the worship of God. And Jeroboam II never left it, thinking there was no harm in it, because it had been the way of all his ancestors and predecessors. Verse 24, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, now these words, he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. So he continues in this false worship of calves instead of the worship 
of the true and living God, and he never departed. He never repented. He never relented. He never changed. Thirdly, Jeroboam's wickedness played a significant role in the nation's sinfulness, just like that of his namesake, verse 24. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. And now it says this, which he made Israel to sin. So not only was he personally engaged in this false worship, but this false worship continued and prospered in the land of Israel. Here we see that the moral failures of the king of Israel led to the moral failures that typified the nation. We see that a godless leader corrupts the society over which he rules. There's a significance when the ungodly rule, the culture becomes ungodly. We find that he followed in the footsteps of the wicked king for which he was named. He adopted the role of that wicked king. He adopted the model. We are not off to a good start in the narrative of Jeroboam's life. This is not good. The reader does not have a feeling about, a good feeling about what's coming next. You know, if this were a movie and we were watching the plot of the movie unfold, you get to that place in the movie where all of a sudden you hear that ominous, eerie sound, that da 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 and you know that something bad is going to happen. Well, here it is. The, the ground has been laid. We have this wicked king, and now we are just waiting for the hammer to fall. We're, we're waiting for all of this hardship and difficulty to come upon the nation of Israel and on this king because of his wickedness and his refusal to depart from it. But now, surprisingly, we are introduced to Jeroboam's accomplishments. We find out that Jeroboam had a long and fruitful reign. It tells us in verse 23 that he reigned for 41 years, which is the longest reign of any of the kings of Israel. Now, there were kings in Judah that reigned longer than 41 years, but not a single king in Israel that reigned as long as Jeroboam reigned. He had a long reign. And not only did he have a long reign, but he had a fruitful reign. He was able to achieve many accomplishments. Among his accomplishments, Jeroboam is able to restore the kingdom to a similar size as it was in the days of Solomon, verse 25. It says he restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah. Now, I'm not going to take time to go back and look at it, but if you would take the time and go back and look, you would see that that's a description of the size of the kingdom in Solomon's age. So we find out that the territory that was lost under all the previous kings of Israel where more and more of the land is lost, under Jeroboam, that land is now regained. The kingdom grows. Jeroboam was able to accomplish much. The summary that's given to us in verse 28 says this, Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, and all that he did, and his might how he fought, and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah, to Judah in Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So he meets with success after success after success. He is prospering. So one might be surprised at all that Jeroboam was able to accomplish. Why is it surprising? Because the Lord's blessing of Jeroboam seems quite inconsistent with Jeroboam's sinfulness and a failure to repent of his false worship. One might expect destruction and hardship to have come upon Jeroboam and the nation 
as a result of that sinfulness. After all, that is the pattern that we have seen so often in God dealing with these kings. Israel has just continually gone down, gone down, gone down. It's been a virtual steady decline because they have had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. And now, while Israel is at its lowest, all of a sudden, another wicked king, but this time, Israel prospers. And this time, the kingdom grows. Why? Where is God in all of this? Why would God allow this prosperity? On well, answering that question, the first thing we find out is that God had declared that Jeroboam would prosper. Notice verse 25. It says, He restored the border of Israel from Le- Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah. Now, these words, according to the word of the Lord of the God of Israel. It's in accordance with God's word. It's what God had declared. It's what God had revealed. It's what God had said. This reference is to the prophetic statement comes out of nowhere. We're not expecting it. We're surprised. This all happens in accordance to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now that actual prophecy is nowhere recorded in the Old Testament. You can't turn to a passage and read it in its specificity. It's, it's not declared. It's not told us. It simply says that this is in keeping with God's word. Rather, we are simply informed that the ability of Jeroboam to accomplish what he did was consistent with God, what God had said would happen. Thus, at the very least, we can say that God is keenly aware and not surprised about what is taking place. It comes with God's full knowledge of the situation. What is noteworthy and perhaps also surprising is that God's message is communicated through Jonah, verse 25. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. And now these words, which he spoke by a servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. Though we do not know exactly what Jonah said, nevertheless, we are told specifically that the message was delivered through Jonah. So we find out that who said this message is actually more important than exactly what was said. The emphasis is on the fact that this comes through the prophet Jonah. So again, the reader is surprised. For Jonah appears out of nowhere. He hasn't been mentioned up until this point, and he's not mentioned again in the narrative. He just appears. We need to remember that Elisha is dead, and others are now prophesying at this time. In fact, two very notable prophets are prophesying in this very same period, which is Hosea and Amos. And they shed a great light, if you read them, about what is happening in the nation of Israel at this time. And it's not good. So Jonah appears. Who is this Jonah? Jonah is the same Jonah that is found in the book of the Bible bearing his name. Jonah is the Jonah of the fish. Jonah is the Jonah that preaches concerning Nineveh. Jonah 1.1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, the same Jonah. So why does God use Jonah as opposed to one of these other prophets. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. 
Why Jonah? Next, importantly, we have the motivation or reason for God helping the children of Israel revealed. Why would God do this? Why would he cause the wicked to prosper? Well, let's look at verses 25 and 26. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Araba, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gethhefer. Verse 26, 4. 4. Here is the introduction to our answer to the question, why God prospers the wicked in this instance. Why does this happen? You find out that God does not help them due to their righteousness. He helps them due to his compassion. It is out of pity for their condition. The condition that they were in was miserable. Notice verse 26. For the Lord saw the situation of Israel. He was keenly aware of the plight that Israel was in. And they are described as afflicted. They were oppressed. They were suffering. They were in great hardship. The next verse tells us that they were down to a people that had almost been totally destroyed. Their misery was extensive and their resources were gone. They were in a hopeless situation. God looked upon them and had compassion. And then even more, we are told that their affliction was bitter, verse 26. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. It's interesting the word that is translated as bitter, for it means to be stubborn, rebellious, incurable, thus unrepentant. Their bitterness, their rebelliousness, was the cause of their affliction, and their rebelliousness continued on through their affliction. They did not repent. Nevertheless, that does not preclude God from still being merciful. We find out that God helps them despite their sinfulness. His help is not to be seen in any way as a result of Jeroboam's and the nation's faithfulness, nor is it a result of their repentance. Rather, God's help was simply and solely a result of his mercy and grace. The very concept of grace is undeserved. And that which underlies mercy is the concept of pity. God had pity upon them, and God treated them in a way in which they did not deserve. God was keenly aware of their pitiful condition. God was keenly aware of their helpless situation. He also was keenly aware of their sinfulness. But because of his compassion and his grace, God intervenes and helps them. Though surprising, God showing compassion and pity was not inconsistent with or in contradiction to his word. Our text is quite concerned with making that point very clear. Notice verse 27. But, but, here is a conversive. It's telling us that why this action is good and correct. For it tells us in verse 27, but the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. God had pronounced judgment, but he never said, I'm just going to totally wipe out this people. He hadn't said that. He hadn't said that. They were on the verge of distinction. They were on the verge of being totally wiped out. But God had never said, I will totally wipe them out. Therefore, God was not acting unrighteously. 
God was not even acting out of character. For God had not said that their destruction would be complete and final, that they would be totally wiped out. Verse 27. The Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. This is important to keep in mind. God's compassion is not inconsistent with his judgment. God's mercy does not violate his holy and righteous character. Therefore, because of God's compassion and grace, because the showing of compassion did not contradict what God had said or pronounced, therefore, God delivered Israel through the instrumentality of Jeroboam. Verse 27. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from heaven. Now this important little word, so. So. This explains what comes next. There is no inconsistency here. For God never said he was going to totally wipe them out. So, what does he do? He saves them. He saves them. We're to see that the action of God in delivering them was not contrary to God's word or character. And the emphasis should not be lost that it was God who delivered Israel from its trouble. It tells us in verse 27, he saved them. That answers the question, where is God? We find out that this isn't something that God just allowed. God didn't just wink at what was taking place. God was actively involved in Jeroboam's accomplishment and the defeats of the nations round about them. God is doing this. Not only does God allow Jeroboam to prosper, God is the one prospering him. What a different view of the world's events. When we ask the question, why do the wicked prosper? The answer is, because God is behind it. God is behind it. And as soon as you say, well, God is behind it, then does that mean God is evil? Does that mean there's a flaw in the character of God? The answer is no. There has just been this ground laid that says it's not inconsistent with his word and it's not inconsistent with his character. It is the very nature of grace to give people what they don't deserve. And so God delivered Israel through God's instrument, Jeroboam, the end of verse 27. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. This addresses the character of God. There is nothing wrong in what God is doing here, which leads us to a broader consideration of God's grace to the undeserving and how we are to view God and respond to his grace. Now we come back to the prophet Jonah. Jonah. Why does our text tell us that Jonah is the one who delivers this message to Jeroboam? I believe it's because this particular instance was monumental in the life of Jonah. This was intended to teach Jonah a tremendous lesson about grace. But unfortunately, Jonah, like so many others, abused the grace of God and respond to it in an improper way. Turn with me now to the book of Jonah, if you would. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Now, in the book of Jonah, we find out that Jonah was sent by God to Nineveh to pronounce judgment against Nineveh. But Jonah would refuse to go to Nineveh, and in fact, 
went in the opposite direction. But God got Jonah's attention, brought him to submission by his being swallowed by a great fish. Then he was coughed up, and Jonah did go and preach to the city of Nineveh. However, Jonah did not want to see the grace of God extended to the people of Nineveh. They were a wicked people and an enemy of the people of Israel. So Jonah's response to Nineveh repenting and experiencing the grace of God was anger. He was angered that God had graciously spared the people of Nineveh. I want to pick up at Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. What he's angered at is God's sparing the people of Nineveh. Then we have Jonah's wrong response to the knowledge of the grace of God. Jonah was quite familiar with the grace of God. Notice verse 2 of Jonah 4. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Here's the reason. For I knew that you're a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. How did Jonah know of God's grace? How did he know that God was one who would spare the wicked? He knew it more than in a mere academic sense. He was the prophet that was sent to Jeroboam, a wicked king that said, you will prosper. God will establish you. And he found out that God was a God of grace in dealing with people. So Jonah knew, he expected that Nineveh would experience the grace of God as well. And Jonah had anticipated that Nineveh would experience God's grace. Notice verse 2 of chapter 4 of Jonah and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my own country? Didn't I say that all along? I knew you were going to let these people off the hook. I knew that you were going to let them go free. I know you're a gracious God. You're long-suffering. You're merciful. And he was angered at the mercy and grace of God. Jonah did not want to see the wicked experience the grace of God and to prosper, which is the reason that Jonah initially refused to go to Nineveh. Notice verse 2 of Jonah 4. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country, that they are going to experience the grace of God? Now notice this. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Going on in verse 2, for I knew that you're a gracious God. The reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh is because he knew that God was gracious. The grace of God did not compel Jonah to obedience. The grace of God compelled Jonah to disobedience. For Jonah found disfavor with, disapproved of the grace of God. He didn't want to see it extended to the Ninevites. It was because of God's grace that he resisted and went in the option direction. But ironically, Jonah was a recipient of God's grace himself. God had repeatedly spared the life of 
the disobedient Jonah. Jonah had been in the belly of the fish. And now, in Jonah's anger, God is going to spare him once again. Jonah 4.3, Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, You do well to be angry? Is this the proper response, Jonah? Should you be angry at what I'm doing? Should you find fault with my grace and my mercy? Are you going to challenge my character? Are you going to challenge my goodness? Are you going to challenge what I have declared to be right and good? Do you have any right to be angry? God had every right at that moment to strike him dead. But God is a gracious God. God is a merciful God. God is long-suffering. And God treats Jonah in a way in which Jonah does not deserve. And so God teaches Jonah through an object lesson. Jonah is sitting outside of the city, just waiting to see what's going to happen. And that is that, of course, it's not going to be destroyed because of the grace of God. And as he's sitting, it's extremely hot. And so God, in his grace and his mercy, causes a plant to grow to bring shade to Jonah and a respite from the heat. But God then removes that plant and the heat comes. And of course, Jonah is angry again. And so in Jonah chapter 4, verse 9, God said to Jonah, you well to be angry for the plant? Are, are, is it right that you be angry that I remove this plant? He said, yes! I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. You better believe it. I'm in the right here. I'm angered at all you're doing. I'm angered that you spare the Ninevites, and I'm angered now that you destroy this plant. But we find that Jonah had failed to have pity on others. Verse 10, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Lord, Jonah, you pitied a plant and wanted it to be saved from destruction just because you found favor in it because it kept you from the heat. God says, is it wrong for me to have pity on a people, 120,000? Those that are so young or Mentally feeble, that they don't even know their right hand from their left? Is it wrong for me to spare them? Are you right to be angry? Is this appropriate? Of course it is. Of course it is. God's pity, God's compassion is noble, it's wonderful. It's not a character flaw. God's grace should always be amazing to us. However, God's grace should not be surprising to us. We should always marvel at a God who is kind and gracious to a disobedient and rebellious people but it shouldn't surprise us. Conclusion. What are we to learn from this text? Well, first, this text should help us in answering some very basic questions that we all have. First, why do the wicked prosper? Well, they do not prosper as a result of their unrighteousness for their sins. They are not being rewarded 
But nor do they prosper because God is weak. Because God is not sovereign. Because God is not able to bring his will to pass or judgment. No, in fact, it is the very power of God that is at work that causes the evil to prosper. The prosperity of the wicked is not antithesis to the sovereignty of God. It's in keeping with the sovereignty of God. Then, do the wicked prosper because God is unjust? Is there a moral weakness or flaw in the character of God that the wicked wicked prosper? Are we in the right to stand and hold a fist against God and say, God, if you are good and if you are righteous, then it is wrong for you to prosper the wicked. No. They prosper because God is gracious and God is merciful. And those are traits not to bring shame, but to bring honor and glory. It is praiseworthy that God is gracious and God is merciful. Does God's grace mean that he will never judge? That there never will be an ultimate accounting? The answer to that is no. And as we work our way through kings, we will find that Judgment comes, unfailingly so. But God has demonstrated compassion and grace, even as ultimately judgment will follow. So what are the great takeaways in this passage? First, God is gracious not only to the good, but to the wicked. Listen to Psalm 145.8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now these words, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. God's mercy is not reserved for the elect. God's mercy extends to the most wicked. God has pity upon them for all that they are experiencing and will experience. The scripture says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. As we think about God's grace, we need to begin with thinking about God's grace in our own lives. We should not be blind to the fact that God has been gracious to us and treated us in ways that we do not deserve. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Every one of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior has experienced God's grace. Not one of us has deserved the right to be his child. Not one of us can stand and say that we deserve, we merit to be a part of his kingdom and to be ushered into his presence. God has treated every one of us in ways that we don't deserve. We all have rebelled before we came to Christ and after we have come to Christ. We still aren't sinless. We still aren't pure. We still are not totally obedient. We still do not love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. God is continually gracious with us all. May we not be blind to that grace. The psalmist says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, 
Who can stand? But with you is forgiveness that you may be feared. He has forgiven us. The grace of God should not lead us to rebellion or to find fault with the character of God. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to the flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew that God was gracious. And unfortunately, the knowledge of God's grace led him to practice disobedience. If our understanding of grace results in disobedience in our life, people, we don't understand grace. And we don't understand disobedience. Disobedience brings heartache. Disobedience brings mercy. I mean, hardship and difficulty. They were in affliction because of their rebelliousness. Life is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. Paul anticipates the question when he teaches that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Having taught in Romans chapter 5, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6 opens with a question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we just go on sinning so we can experience more grace? What's the answer? God forbid. God forbid that that ever become our understanding of grace. That we just sin thinking that, well, God will forgive me. God will still watch over me. God will still protect me. May we understand the grace, the goodness of God is to lead us to repentance. The grace of God should not embolden us to live sinfully. But the grace of God should cause us to be a people who want to see God's grace extended to others. The God of grace and the grace of God should make us thankful. Psalm 86, verse 12. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. I will be thankful to you. Does God's grace make us thankful? Perhaps God's grace makes us thankful when it's extended to us, but are we thankful for God's grace that's extended to others? Are we thankful when our enemies experience the grace of God? Are we thankful when we see the wicked experience the grace of God? Are we thankful that when we see people who are in opposition to us and cause us harm and difficulty, are we thankful for the grace of God? So the grace of God should lead us to be thankful. And then secondly, the grace of God should not lead us to question the character and goodness of God. But rather, the grace of God should lead us to the praise of God. Listen to Psalm 86, verse 12 again. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. I will speak well of you. I will praise you 
I will honor you. I will exalt you, O Lord, for your grace. I will never speak ill of it. There are so many that speak ill of God because God is gracious. May we never be among them. May we glorify a God of grace. That yes, in that grace, even causes the wicked to prosper. Rather than find fault with God, may we marvel at how long-suffering he is, at how gracious he is, how good he is. And lastly, the grace of God should lead us to be a gracious people that have pity upon others in their miserable state that results from their sin. God looked at Israel and saw their affliction. They had been brought to a place of almost nothing. But God in his pity didn't want to just totally wipe them out so that no one was left. Can we see, can we have pity upon those that are experiencing the consequences of their sin to those who now are low? They are helpless. They are miserable. They are in anguish. And yes, even if they still are unrepentant, even if they still don't turn to God, do we at least have a spirit of compassion that feels for them in their misery and seek to alleviate some of it? To try to help them, not because they're deserving, not because they're righteous, and not even because they're repentant, but simply because they are a fellow human being that's made in the image of God. Is there room for compassion? Is there room for grace? And in that compassion and grace, and we're concerned about their needs, may we never forget the greatest need is to come to Christ. The greatest need is to experience the forgiveness of God. And so, as we think about the wicked and in their plight of misery, may we understand that their greatest plight and their greatest misery is not their need for water, or not their need for food, or not their need for housing. While all those are legitimate needs, and while all of those it's appropriate for us to try to alleviate, may we never forget the greatest need is for them to experience the forgiveness of sins and enjoy peace with God forever, as opposed to an eternal judgment. May we never, ever be pleased that someone is entering a Christless eternity. May we share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and rejoice and give thanks when they repent. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you and praise you, and we're grateful that you are a gracious, merciful, compassionate God. Oh Lord, may we exalt you in your grace and your compassion. May we never limit your sovereignty. May we never ever attribute actions as though they are apart from you, under your control, under your authority. Lord, it is you and we say it to your praise and to your glory. It is you who caused the wicked to prosper. And, O oh Lord, may we not be envious of their prosperity, or even as in Psalm 73, we know their end. Jeroboam enters a Christless eternity 
Jeroboam will know an eternal judgment. The prosperity of the kingdom is not worth it. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Riches are not worth our judgment and condemnation. O oh Lord, you are deserving of thanks. You are deserving of praise. And may your grace never, ever be understood as to lead us to sin. But may, by your grace, we respond in the right way, which is to acknowledge your goodness, your mercy, and the fact that your word preserves us from heartache and misery. So, Lord, by your grace, help us to live more faithfully, more committedly, more like the Lord Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. I just want to make a final appeal to anyone here this morning who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. You never have asked him to forgive you of your sins. Maybe you, up until this point, have seen no need. Your life is running smoothly. You have plenty to eat. You have a place to live. You are happy in your sin. And maybe you think that it just demonstrates there is no God or there's no God who will ever do anything about it. But this morning, if you've been living in sin and have never repented, never asked Jesus to be your Savior, it is only the grace of God that has kept you alive to this point, and it's only the grace of God that has given you the cushy life that you experience. But you are not winning. You are not raising a fist to God. God is being long-suffering. God is being gracious. But there is a day of accountability. There is a day in which that grace will end. And I implore you, if you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior, pray and experience his forgiveness and grace. Now, may the grace of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit and the love of God be with you all. Amen.